Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verses 1 to 24. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Ikea and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit, and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer together. A great God and Father, uh, after the lofty heights of chapter 15, help us respond rightly with these very practical instructions in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. Help us to understand them rightly uh, and then to live rightly, looking forward to resurrection hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I... Finally finished, it took me a little too long probably, uh, Tom Holland's wonderful book, Dominion. Now, he wouldn't call himself a Christian. He's a professional historian, but uh, decided after you know various things filled into his thinking, but thought, actually, I want to understand where do my values come from? Where does compassion come from in the West? Where does the idea of equality come from, regardless of creed and... Uh, uh, gender, class, occupation, colour. Where, where, where do these values come from? Because I, my specialism is ancient history, Greece, Rome. It doesn't come from there. Where does it come from? And he does his investigation as a professional historian, and he's written it up in Dominion, and his conclusion is a fairly clear one. They come from Christianity. 
he would describe the events of Easter, the death, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ as the pivot of history around everything which, around which everything turns. It's very striking. Uh, have you finished it? I thought, well, what's the best response? What do people say? And, uh, and uh, went online, the little one hour debate between Tom Holland and uh, Anthony Grayling on the issue. And uh, so there's Tom Holland saying, well, basically all our values come from Christianity. Anthony Grayling says, no, 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 they come from ancient uh, Greece. He concedes two things that were distinctive about the early church. One, they were radically generous in giving away their money. Two, they lacked anxiety. They were not warriors because they thought their future was in God's hand and they looked forward to resurrection. Now he concedes those two, but says, well, neither here nor there. Everything else comes from Greece. But it's interesting, you can watch the debate on, online and uh, see what you think. I'm pretty persuaded by Tom Holland, unsurprisingly. But uh, there you've got Tom Holland. The events of Easter transform this world. I'm not a Christian, but I see that. A.C. Grayling. Well, no, no, you've overstated the case. But the early church, because of their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they lived without worry and they were radically generous with their money. Why do I tell you that? Uh, I mention that because this chapter of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 16, it is all about the very practical difference that the resurrection of Jesus makes to our daily lives. Indeed, in our planning and our finances, amongst others. Now, if you're just joining us today, uh, we spent three weeks uh, looking at the magnificent chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, all about the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the first Easter, how that guarantees, it's the down payment, it's the assurance that anyone who trusts in him will rise again to be with him in the new creation, physical, wonderful, magnificent, much better than this world. And we spent quite a lot of time, because it's a very long chapter, chapter 15, on that. Now, if you were here with us, the chapter concluded, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing, nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection guarantees that anything you do for Jesus in this life will be rewarded in the next. So... Very practically, chapter 16, how are some of the ways that that would happen? How are some of the ways that if you're a Christian, you should labour for the Lord now, confident of resurrection to come? I'm going to try and summarise it uh, in three. Really, give generously, plan humbly, welcome graciously. I mean, there are many things we could say, but those are the three that really uh, stand out in chapter 16. Give generously. Plan humbly, welcome graciously. Let's have a look at them. First, then, in uh, verses 1 to 4, give generously. Now, uh, caveat, um, before I even read it, I I I'm conscious that uh, numerous people who, who are tuning in at the moment would not call themselves uh, Christians. And this may or may not have been of interest to you, this particular point. 
But just bear in mind, A.C. Grayling says, the generosity of the early church was somewhat unprecedented. It was radical. Uh, it is a distinctive mark of how someone lives if they're a Christian. So uh, it's just an example of what people do if they have a future hope. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So clearly nothing unique here. Paul says, this is what I'm telling you. I've told the churches in the area of Galatia, Turkey. And um, this is just normal standard behaviour. There's to be a collection for the Lord's people. It's not spelt out here, but in, in another letter, Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, chapters 8 and 9, he says, well, he goes into more detail about collecting. There's clearly some famine in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And Paul wants the Gentile, non-Jewish Christians to give to the Jewish Christians. It's a mark of solidarity. That seems to be what's taking place. Now, what does he say should happen? Well, three little things, if I may, just about it. This giving should be regular, proportionate and well administered. So verse two, on the first day of each week or every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, I'll go as well. So he's, this giving is meant to be uh, regular. So Paul says, set it aside on the first day of the week, so Sunday for them, um, and uh, hand some over to the treasurer at church, so that when I come, what I don't want to happen, says Paul, is to turn up and then I have to collect money from people, and, uh, and people only do it because well, it's a little embarrassing if they're the odd one out who doesn't give anything as uh, a sort of panic sense, or oh, I really should do something, a bit like the man who knocks at your door, can you give some money to this charity, or oh, feel a bit awkward, I'll give you something. None of that. I want you to plan your giving, says Paul. It should be regular. That's the first little principle. Uh, second is that it should be proportionate. So he says it's got to be in keeping with your income. And no doubt, as a, a Jewish scholar, he had the idea of tithing in the back of his head, the Old Testament principle of giving 10% uh, of your income. He would have known that. But the New Testament, and Paul as one writer, goes further. So, for example, that other main section where he talks about the giving here in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he'll say giving should be generous and it should be sacrificial and it should be cheerful. It should be a pleasure in doing it. And so in one sense, it's quite easy just to give 10%. I mean, not everyone does. It's quite easy, possibly, to do that. You just write it off as a tax to the Lord. But that's not what the New Testament, it's not how Christians think. Giving should be generous, sacrificial, cheerful. If you neglect to give, that's a fail. But if you give resentfully, that's a fail. If you give meanly, it's a fail. No, regular, cheerful, generous, sacrificial. Those are the principles the New Testament would highlight. 
But how is it that Christians can do that? Give cheerfully without resentment? Well, think perhaps in these terms, go back uh, a, a few weeks when a lockdown was just about to happen and there was the sort of panicked buying in the supermarkets and it was just mayhem, not a loo roll or a pack of pasta in sight. The mere purchase of a tin of tuna could have you shrieking with delight and celebration. Yes, I've got some tinned vegetables. Fantastic. Um, back then, well, we're a bit calmer now, but back then, everyone's sort of clamouring to get food. And, um, but you observe in your street... Someone has set up a big, long table outside their house with a sign saying, here's all the food in our house. Feel free. Take it. There's vast amounts of fresh meat and fresh vegetables and uh, uh, loo rolls and um, uh, tins and pasta and all sorts. And so the, the, after a while, people observe in the street. Everyone pours out of their houses and is grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. And, and you just observe this and think, this is extraordinary. Why would you give away all of your food. Eventually the crowds disperse, the last tin of spam, the last kohlrabi cabbage is finally taken away and you go up to the owner of the house and you say to the woman, how can you be so generous? I mean reckless in what you're giving away. And she says, oh to be honest it's quite easy. My husband, he's a, a delivery driver, for Sainsbury's and um, he's got a second van stocked up and when he's finished his round for the day he's bringing, uh, bringing back to the house a whole van just for us stuffed full of everything so we can give all this away because we know that a vast amount of food is coming oh you say I guess it's easier to be generous when you know that riches are just about to arrive. Yeah, she says. That's how the Christian lives. They can be generous with possessions, money now, because they know that riches will arrive when we arrive in God's new creation. That hope of where we're going radically affects our use of money, resources, here and now. So uh, it was very lovely, as um, many would know, the church family here at Christchurch Mayfair, um, when lockdown was first announced, many of those self-employed, all of a sudden, the next three, four months worth of work, gone. Zero coming in for three or four months. And so we mentioned this, and a, a vast sum of money poured in from the church family into what we call a deacon's fund, into a hardship fund for, for those who are going to struggle and won't be able to access any payments before June from the government to tide them up. Amazing how generous people were, particularly when many at the moment for themselves are anxious, nervous. What does our future hold? What is my job going to look like soon? It was a very lovely generosity made possible by confidence that riches are coming in the future. Give generously is the first little thing that people who hope in the resurrection do. Verses one to four. Uh, let's pick up the pace. Uh, secondly then, uh, plan humbly, verses five to nine. Plan humbly, it may not seem the most exciting, but there's some great principles here. Verse five, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. 
probably going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Very simply put, Paul make pl makes plans, but he knows he's in God's hands. Okay? He makes plans, but he knows that he's in God's hands. Things only happen if the Lord permits them to happen. Now, perhaps we realise this more acutely than ever. This lockdown has made a mockery for many of us of the plans that we had in place. Perhaps more than any other point in our lives, we've come to realise this truth. Uh, the Apostle James expresses it very well in his letter, James chapter 4, verse 14. Now listen, you who say, oh, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and we'll do this or that. So Paul knows that he's in God's hands and still he makes plans. And that is the wise way of living. You want to have both. Let me put it in this sort of daft way of illustrating. If you've ever been rock climbing, um, you know, it's a whole lot easier to do so if you've got a harness on, you're strapped in and someone's gone ahead of you and uh, their rope is secured to you. It means you can take risks on the cliff face. You think to yourself, can I reach that handhold? Yeah, I can get that one. What about that one? Whoops, I've missed. Now, if you miss, what happens? You fall, but the harness captures you. There's a safety net, as it were. There's a harness that means if you climbing and you have a tumble, oh, it hurts when the harness, but nothing worse. The Christian is clear in his mind. I can take risks. I can, not reckless ones, but I can be ambitious for Jesus because if I try something and it doesn't quite happen, well, uh, oh, the harness will catch me. It may hurt, it may hurt my pride, but nothing calamitous can happen because I'm in the Lord's hands. It's a fabulous truth. It liberates you from anxiety, indecision, and beating yourself up if something doesn't go right or go well. It liberates you from pride because you know that anything that does go well, any achievements that succeed, well, God has given them to you. They're dependent upon him. So it's wonderful to know that you're in God's hands. It means you can make grand plans without fear, without pride. So Paul knows that any plans, well, what shapes his plans, verse 8? I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. But Paul says, look, I want to make the most use of my life to serve the Lord. And at the moment, there's a seemingly an opportunity to, to tell people about Jesus, to, to teach people about Jesus. And I'm going to grab hold of that. A door is open 
I mean, there's opposition at the same time, and often the two things go hand in hand, opportunity and opposition. Uh, that is true. But Paul says, look, there are no certainties in life. We're all dependent upon the Lord, what he permits. But I know that my, chapter 15, verse 58, I know that my labour for the Lord is not in vain. And so I will labour for him. That is what will drive my decision making. What can I achieve for the Lord? How can I be ambitious for him? Now, if things go slightly wrong, I'm not out of his hands. I'll still ultimately be with him in glory. So plan humbly and make plans that serve Jesus. So give generously, plan humbly. Uh, last little thing, welcome graciously, verses 10 to 12. Here's a strange little section, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, if you read through this letter from um, Paul to the Corinthians, they are a proud people and they did treat others contemptuously. Already in the letter, uh, chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, they've shown contempt to those of tender conscience. In chapter 11, the, the wealthy were showing contempt towards the poor in the church. They wanted to bring their social status outside of church into that gathering and they'd been dismissive, contemptuous. And Paul says, you can't do that. The saving message of Jesus Christ humbles all of us to the same level. All of us, because of our sin and selfishness, deserve rejection by God. But Jesus has come so that anyone of any background, any nation, any gender, any socioeconomic status, anyone, no matter how wicked they've been, they put their faith in Jesus, can know he's died for their sins and can know that they will raise, be raised with him to eternal life. The message of Christianity is a leveller. Now we keep reading or hearing at the moment that this era, this COVID-19 is a leveller. You can catch it and be brought to the point of death if you live on Downing Street or if you live on Benefit Street. It treats all the same, this silent killer. It levels. Although if you're super rich on your mega yacht in the Caribbean, you may feel a little more safe. It only takes one crew member taking delivery of one pack of foie gras and you can catch it as well. It is a leveller. But no more so than sin is a great leveller. All of us have a problem. And Jesus is the only one who can rescue us. Now, if you know that, and Paul is writing to Christians here saying, come on, you can't look down on other people when you've all been saved in the same way. Don't show contempt. This is what Tom Holland realised, that Jesus' death, was also for the slaves, for the tanners, for those who were working down ancient mines in horrific conditions. Jesus, what is so radical about Christianity, treats all on an equal plane. Extraordinary.
So Paul says, welcome, Timothy. You may not like him personally, but he's carrying on the work of the Lord to honour him. Give generously, plan humbly, welcome graciously. How can you do all these things? Well, Paul concludes this way. You can love in the strength that Jesus provides. Verse 13, 14, you get these five staccato commands. Be on your guard against unworthy behaviour, against false doctrine, uh, against pride. Those are the things that crop up in the letter. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Because to live as a Christian is not for the coward. Because you will have to stand up in the face of opposition. Christian life is only for those who are brave enough. To trust Jesus. And the last command really summarises the letter. Do everything in love. Because that's how you've been treated. And you can do this if you're confident in the love of Jesus Christ. He's the one who has given to you generously. He's given his life. He's taken God's punishment against sin into himself he's given to you generously planned humbly well certainly he committed himself to his father's will even at the point of dying on the cross saying father into your hands i commit my spirit he welcomes graciously even me even you no matter what you've done no matter how bad you've been he welcomes you and if you understand these things and you're confident of the hope of resurrection, you can live this way. You can welcome graciously, plan humbly, be ambitious for the Lord, give generously, if you know that that's how you've been treated. Let me do this in a prayer. Our great God and Father, these are, in one sense, uh, prosaic, small, commands but yet they require a lot of us because the wonderful absolutely earth-shattering news of easter the death and resurrection of jesus christ if we understand it rightly if we trust jesus and follow him it will affect our daily actions and how we use our wallet and how we plan our time and our diary in how we welcome others and father that's what we desire that you strengthen us with this wonderful truth, the love of Jesus Christ shown to us in the death and, res death and resurrection, that we might live for him. And we pray we'd do so in Jesus' name. Amen.